Okay, mate, 40 here. There's a new movie on Amazon Prime. It's called 13 Lives. And uh, terrific movie. It's about the rescue of those boys in Thailand, right? Uh, boys' soccer team goes exploring in a cave. Big rains come. They get stuck up inside the cave. Is that Thailand is a country of about 275 million people. They put 100 government agencies, the whole nation rallied around what was going on to rescue these boys. And 275 million people, their elite military units, right, their Navy SEALs, right, 275 million people can't rescue these boys. Right? It takes two Englishmen flying in to rescue these boys. And the boys could have been rescued four days earlier if the Thai authorities had not prevented the English divers from getting it done. So, wow, two people get done from England, what 275 million Thai cannot. Let's check out Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome oh. to a special edition. No, not interested in a special edition. All right, so maybe I'll find uh, Duvid, see if Duvid's around. Just report back. There's some Richard <laughs> Is everything okay with the dog? He, he, yeah, everything's okay with the dog. He cleaned a car. So it was very good of him. Oh, it was a real so car or a toy boy, car? I really, really a real this car. Up. He used a hose on a car. Oh, come on, come on, So, 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 so you you expect the rise of people like this? So, but Talk um, about the, the rise I, of I guess Republicans. I, to to, 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 to go back to where denial. we started, I, 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 what really, really fascinates me is the is that the way that the the left have responded to this, and I um, with, with a certain degree of anger and concern. And I think yeah. that, that, that perhaps they are right to, because that term, so, um, with Christian nationalism, and she's explicitly saying um, that um, you can be any race and be a Christian, which, of course, you yeah. can. And she's also explicitly saying, well, as long you, you can be any race and live in our Christian utopia, everybody's going to yeah. want to be where we are. Um, then it's difficult for them to get her with stuff, other than the stuff that they'll go for, oh, she's wacky, she thinks the election was stolen. Talking about Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene. That, yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's going to be true, I reckon, in 2024, or soon of basically most conserv most Republican candidates. That'll be like a, a doctrine of faith to be a Republican candidate. That you, you're a, yeah. I believe they now call it an election denier. Yeah. Um, so, so that'll just be the new abortion. So that's that's not a that, that's not really much. And that. interestingly, I saw this. Actually, Hispanics are more conspiratorial than whites, and so the so much of the Hispanic kind of entree into the Republican Party is on the basis of like COVID denial and stuff like this. So, yeah, it's going to get a lot well, yeah, worse. Yeah. So it's, it'll, it'll be the, it's it's the new thing. It'll be the new marker. You won't be able to get anywhere in the Republican Party if you're not an election denier. I'm, yes, you—it's you, sure. right happening right now. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's election denier v non-election denier. That's going to be it. Yeah. So there's another polarization, uh, yeah. and uh, and she, of course, will. So I think I think I unfortunately for those of us that are that are interested in ideas and being thoughtful about things and, and nuance, um, I, mm -hmm. I see great things ahead for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh uh, yeah, I, I think we're going to hear a lot more about her. In the, in the I, I agree. I think she might very well be on the presidential ticket. Yeah. Well, I'm to. Hey, yeah. So Republicans is the party of denial. That's uh, Richard and Ed there. Let's get of on. yours. Uh, and I, I think even your witch's book could in, it is in some ways about Christian nationalism, you know, writ large, um, and how that 
how regimes of that type can emerge in history. But why I suggested this was that it really is in the news in a surprising way, in the way that maybe white nationalism was in the news um, a few years ago. I, I think that is now morphed to Christian nationalism, and it's something that might actually be even more dangerous and widespread. And I think it's worth talking about the differences between Christian nationalism and white nationalism. But Lauren Boebert has explicitly said, uh, you know, I look for the, uh, the separation of church and state in the Constitution, and it's not there. Uh, it was just in some letter that Jefferson wrote. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk that's not in the Constitution. It was in a stinking letter, and it means nothing like what they say it does. I think we can go into the degree to which he's right and the degree to which he's wrong. Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the other wild banshee of Congress, these new kind of post-Trump, you know, um, crazy people who have entered the legislature. Um, she has also openly identified it. Now, she, when I, I watched an interview of hers with a very mainstream um, commentator named Michael Knowles on the Daily Wire, I, I guess, and she basically just described Christian nationalism as conservatism. So she, she said things like, I, as a Christian, I put my faith in Jesus Christ, and he's my savior. I am a sinner, and you know, all basic stuff. And then she said that, but as a Christian nationalist, uh, we love everyone, <clears throat> and we want to protect the border, and well, I'm I'm a Christian. Um, you know, I I I have my full faith in God and Jesus is my savior. I'm I'm not perfect. I'm I'm definitely a sinner. I know that for sure. And that's why I put my faith in the Son of God who died on a Roman cross so that my sins could be forgiven. And that's the profession of my faith. Uh, being a nationalist means I just love my country. I love America. I'm proud to be an American. But also means that I believe that Americans' hard-earned tax dollars should be used for America and our interests, such as securing our border, uh, making sure that our economy is strong, that our businesses are put forth first, not other businesses and other countries. Um, I care about our kids. I care about our kids a lot. I care about our kids so much that I believe it's imperative that we protect them from the, the godless left and their plans to, to lie to the kids. Um, confusing, confusing them about gender, uh, drag queens in schools, CRT, racist teaching and ideologies. Um, and I care about our kids' future. And that means that I think that our government should be working for America's interests first. It, it just kind of sounded like a um, light reduction of just kind of Trumpism or really just the Republican Party. So it's, it's, it's a questionable of what they actually that's, that's, mean that's by why, That's why it's so clever, because uh, to a great extent, it is uh, European ethno-nationalism. So I went off on a rant last night. Something just occurred to me. I know many times when, when I was growing up, I would think there's something essential to being a Seventh-day Adventist. I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. Then I converted to Judaism. And I thought, ah, oh, there's you know, some essential quality to being Jewish as opposed to being Christian, as opposed to being Muslim. And then I got older and realized that every essential quality that I wanted to ascribe to any of these groups was contingent, all right? It's a word that academics love, but for good reason, all right? Me being a good person is contingent upon certain situations, all right? So if you employ me or you lend me your property, all right, or if you're friends with me, I mean, I'm not going to steal from you, all right? Uh, Theft is not something that, that tempts me. Uh, other things tempt me, all right? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just a man. I'm weak. You know, I get tired. I have cartilages. But, but theft and ripping people off and treating other people's property carelessly, not generally a tendency of mine. So... You know, 40, when it comes to borrowing and returning property and treating it as though it's his own, yeah, it tends to be, I think, what what people would uh, call, call good. But 
uh, on the other hand, I can be, I was hanging out with a friend. Let me just put it this way. I was hanging out with a friend for hours. And every time he said something, like he he was speaking in an exploratory questioning manner and he he was kind of thinking out loud and, and haltingly moving towards a point. And almost every time he did this, I would jump in and give the definitive answer. And and he said, you've got the answer to everything, don't you? Right. So that's quite obnoxious. <laughs> All right. And, and it's a trait I've had my whole life. All right. So when when uh, I was in second grade on my report card, it said, you know, Luke's always very willing to share his opinion with the class, but he needs to learn to be more considerate of the slower thinker. I had a classmate, Doug, in high school, and he, he tells me about eight years after high school that his memories of me in high school are not fond. Luke Ford was an arrogant little turd who was always right, regardless of whether he was right. Whatever his arguments lacked in substance, he made up for in verve and raw rhetorical abilities. Luke frequently seemed illogical. So not such a good person there. So long time, no talk. Uh, Donnie Pauling, how, how are you, sir? What's going on? Oh, I'm doing good. Excellent. Uh, hope, hopefully the sound's coming through my uh, mic and yep. not yep. through the phone. Yep, yep, yep. Sound, sounds good. So for, for people who don't know you, why don't you give like a two, three, four, five minute kind of overview of the incredible journey that you've been on? And I haven't spoken to you in a, in a year or two. So give, give us an overview of your incredible journey and bring us up to date with what's going on with you these days. So uh, when I first met, well, first of all, I was a pastor, so I guess I should start there. I was raised the son of a Protestant pastor and uh, hated anything and everything about uh religion because I thought it was all a bunch of crap at the time during my teen years. So in my early 20s, I became a, a producer in the adult industry, film producer, did that for almost 10 years. And uh, because of a string of events and a group of uh, missionaries, I guess you'd call them, you know, that changed my mind about some things, I got out of that business. And I became a uh, speaker. I started being invited all over the world to speak. And that was pretty cool. Um, people would pay me to come and talk about myself. So, yeah, I don't, I don't think it gets a whole lot better than that. Um, and I did that again for uh, almost a decade again, pretty close. And, um, and then my life was completely changed when... Um, a teenager, a 16-year-old girl that was living with me um, in my house, her family was living there, um, made some accusations, um, not saying I was always appropriate, but um, she made some accusations that weren't entirely true, um, but some that were, though. Um, I had to do some time for that, and that was a complete life changer. Uh, get it, get back out and go from having a six-figure income before to uh, giving away government phones on the side of the road. You know, those Obama phones, they call them. And did that um, until I could get back into school, get a few more degrees, and try to figure out life. Went back to digital marketing because one of my customers um, took me back 
one thing I didn't say was that when I got out of adult and I was traveling and speaking, I was also doing digital marketing for car dealers as a, for a living. So one of my clients took me back after I'd been giving away phones for a while. It wasn't near enough money to uh, thrive. It was enough to survive, though. And then, since I've talked to you last, um, some interesting things happened. My mom and my stepdad moved to Arkansas after my stepdad retired. And then they did that in June of last year. And then in August, he died of COVID. So I went back there to make sure my mom was okay in this new place. And while back there... Uh, my stepfather's death kind of just prompted me to do something I've always wanted to do. Instead of trying to obtain more dealership clients back there for digital marketing for car dealers, I told my mom, I said, you know what, I've always wanted to drive a semi-truck, and so I went to school and I learned to do that. That's what I'm doing now. I'm out driving trucks. And uh, approved as of today to buy my own and thinking about doing that. I've got a pretty decent job right now with a, with a company that pays really well. They're, they're paying 150 a year. Um, so it's kind of hard to give that up when it's guaranteed, but I am the type of person who likes to go out on my own. And I think that I could probably, you know, beat what I'm making now by doing it on my own, although that might be very naive. So, that's that's the very basics. <laughs> what are the biggest challenges with being a truck driver? Um, you know, other people that drive on the road are really annoying. <laughs> they don't give you near as much room as you need to stop. They pull right in front of you, or or they'll uh, yeah, they they just they're constantly annoying, but. Um, just kind of learn to deal with it. And this company I'm with doesn't pay by the mile. They pay by the hour. So I remind myself of that. So when, when someone's slowing me down um, or being annoying, I just slow down even further. And don't worry about it because paid by the hour makes up for all of that. It's a, it's a fun job, though. I like it. It's, it definitely suits me. Um, I travel 11 western states and been so really what, enjoying it. What is your life like now that you're earning pretty good money compared to when you were just barely scraping by and working a ton of hours and going to school all at the same time? So, um, you know, I, I was still going to school when I got this job. I was getting my master's at the time in business administration, my MBA. But um, I had to put that on hold because of all the hours that uh, I'm in a truck. And besides that, I really like this life. So, um, but the, the, the flip side of that is you're hardly ever out of the truck to spend the money. So I'm putting money into the 401k plan that they have, which is really good. Um, I bought myself uh, a diesel pickup, um, crew cab, 4x4, GMC. And uh, my plan is to stick um, a camper on it uh, and just basically stay in that on my days off going to different places camping because I'm literally off 24 to, to 48 hours at the very most each week. 
uh, out of the truck. I mean, because I'm a team driver, so even when I'm not on shift driving, um, I'm still in the truck. Like right now, I'm talking to you from the sleeper. And how about repairing relationships? Have have has that happened since you? It has. Yeah. Yeah. What's that process so, been like? So the the girl who made the accusations, um, I had found her on the streets of Salt Lake City. Uh, it took a long time to find her. She'd been homeless. Um, she had actually been um, trafficked. She'd been kidnapped and um, trafficked after she she basically um, found a guy on Tinder and thought she was going on a date and appeared. And a lot of this I didn't know at the time when I found her, but later after we started making up um, and she started sharing what was happening, it made a whole lot of things make sense back at the time when I did find her. Um, but yeah, he had, uh, he had taken her on this date and at the end of the date, he asked her to get into this other car and, 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 put her in the back seat of a two-door car in, in between two people, and away they went. Um, they drugged her. They sold her. Um, the stuff she went through really disturbs me. It's really hard to talk about, so I just gloss over it. But um, I found her on the streets at her mother's request. Um, she asked me to go look for her. I found her, um, sent her back to her mom uh, back east, and then um, she had a boyfriend. Um, this is a new development since I talked to you last. She had a boyfriend that she was living with and had a, had a second child with, the first child she got pregnant with on the streets. Uh, and that's kind of right at about the time that I found her. She was 15 weeks pregnant with him. That got her off all the drugs that she was on the very moment she realized she was pregnant. Um, she just gave them all up cold turkey and has done really well but this new boyfriend back there he uh there was a domestic violence incident and he ran her over with a car and she called me for help because she knew i would help and that turned out to be a great thing um i went back there i i uh i purchased a motor home went back there let her live in it um on my mother's property and uh, this was while I was going to the truck driving school. Hey, let's let's um, do a timeline. So g give me the year, if you remember the month. When did you meet this girl and under what circumstances? And how old was she and how old were you? What was going on in her life at the time? What was going on with your life at the time? Well, back when, when she accused me, she was 16. Yeah, but when did you meet and, her? What was the year that you met her? Um, I had met her and her family. So her, her sister, her mother, um uh really they 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 actually moved into my house in 2011 i think no 2010 2010 and, and, and when then, did you meet her was it 2010 yeah and how yeah. did you meet her and her family so so i basically had someone who who would who had been uh really happy about the speaking i was doing and thought i could change um, the lives of these two um, teen girls who were not doing so well in school. And you're speaking and, at this time as, as an anti-pornography activist. Right. And when did you begin that? Like, when did you leave the industry and start speaking out against it? In 2006 is when I okay. left it. So, so now you're four years, been, 
You're four years yeah. into anti-porn activism. Are you a credentialed pastor by this time? Yeah, yeah. I'd gone to seminary and and I was a, a pastor and a Protestant pastor. And I was speaking. And, and were um, you married? I was not married, although I did. I mean, I'd been married bef- before at the very beginning of my adult career um, that ended because of the adult career. And I tried after um, after getting back out of adult and becoming a pastor, I tried uh, to reconcile with my wife, you know, that I'd had before. And we did date for nine months. Didn't work out. And it was right at the end of that dating that uh, that this uh, family entered my life. Um, so one a of the family grandparents. meaning a mother, a father, and two daughters? Um, a, mo- a mother and two daughters. The a mother father, and two daughters. Uh, yeah, the father was out of the picture, um, except for like once or twice a year. They were divorced, and so he'd only see them a few times a year. And uh, their grandmother basically thought that I would be good for them to get them back on the right track, not that they'd re, uh, pay attention to me because of, uh, you know, the work that I was doing. I was speaking at a lot of events, including youth camps and everything. And how and, old were uh, the girls when you met them? They were just barely teens, so 13 and 14. And uh, when did you realize that one in particular was going to be trouble for you, that you didn't have well, just a pastoral interest in her? Well, so at the very beginning, I mean, she would say things like, I'm going to, you know, when she's 13, she'd say, I'm going to marry you someday. And I thought that was cute, you know, and so did her dad, because, you know, I got, I knew her dad, um, her, her adopted dad, and the one that was divorced from her mother. And so uh, we would laugh about that. And then when she's 16, and really becoming a very beautiful woman, I told him, I says, you know, she's still saying that, but now it seems more like she's meaning it because she's been saying it for so long and she says it in a different way now. And, you know, she does a lot of flirting and, and, um, I says, it's actually, I was honest with him. I says, it's getting pretty difficult for me because she still lives in my house this time and she's running around with very little on. And, um, you know, she, like I said, she was a beautiful, beautiful girl. And I said uh, to him, I need you to talk to her because, you know, this is becoming a struggle. And I told another person, too. He was a school principal in the area um, where I was living uh, because, you know, in the Protestant world, um, it's very uh, popular to be accountable to other peers, to you know, to other people in your own peer group. And so I was telling them, you know, this is starting to get tough for me, you know, because now she's not just a, she's not a girl. Now she's a woman, you know, she's very developed, very curvy, and she's running around with little to nothing on, you know, in the house. So I need help. Well, her dad said he'd be proud to call me his son-in-law. He says a lot of people would give you shit for that, but I wouldn't be one of them. And uh, I didn't expect that answer. And it kind of knocked me off guard. And I started, to be honest, I started trying to rationalize, you know, why it wouldn't be such a bad thing. It's like, you know, in 38 states, she'd be legal. Um, 
in you know there's an age difference but there's you know i found a list of over two dozen celebrities with bigger age differences and all the stupid rationalizations going on but when i finally told her that uh you know she's gonna have to move out of my house um i was angry at the time you know over some stuff that she told and and uh i was very mean said some very rude things to her and told her she's going to have to leave and then she went down and told the police that we'd been having a sexual relationship and having sex three times a day and all this stuff i mean i wasn't even capable of doing that by the way but it's another story but um she you know later tried to to take a lot of it back and they wouldn't let her they said you know victims do that all the time they change their minds and anyway i ended up firing the attorney i had because he wanted to attack her on the witness stand and i really cared about her i didn't want her to go through that you know because she'd already been through some other similar incidents when she was younger and i didn't want to put her through all that kind of crap again because you know when she was six someone had done some stuff to her when she was six years old and uh going through the process of telling people about that had really destroyed her life in many ways i didn't want that to happen again i wanted it to be over quick and i was kind of naive too about the long-term repercussions but i fired my attorney and i i made a deal with the prosecutor and i told them if they would you know give me charges that were true i'd plead guilty if they'd give me charges that were not true i'd plead no contest but make it pursuant to people v west which is different than a normal no contest in that um you're stating that the it's there's not a factual basis for this so the charges that carried the time that they wanted to give me were not true so i i Pleaded no contest pursuant to People v. West, and uh, that really, <laughs> that really changed everything. You know, so that happened when she was 16 years old. So now she's in her mid 20s. Um, we talk nearly every day, and um, she, when she, hey, we just lost uh, internet connection. So motorhome I purchased. Like, Okay, sorry, we, we yeah. just yeah lost uh, connection. So, okay, uh, there has to be a gap between her turning you into police and and you getting back in contact with her. So, what was the time frame? I assume where y you were not talking with her regularly. Um, there was almost. Let's see. It was. Uh, it was a little more than five years. Oh, no, almost five years, almost five years, not quite. And um, when we finally did start talking, at, at first it was just to get her safe and send her to her mom, you know, back east. But then um, after that domestic violence incident and she asked for my help, that's when I, you know, put her in a motorhome temporarily on, on my mother's property. And um, I lived in my mother's house, and she lived in the motorhome. Um, and we did a lot of talking, a lot of healing, and come to a lot of, uh, 
you know, tears over stuff that had happened and apologized to each other and forgave each other. And, and then I, I took her back up by her mom, um, you know, and, and put her in an RV park in the motorhome I'd purchased. And I've been paying all of her bills ever since. Um, I never have gone and saw her in person again, but we talk, um, on messenger and the phone and stuff just about every single day. And, um, you know, I told her not to feel trapped because she, she'd felt trapped, you know, with the guy that she had the baby with because he was supporting all of them. And so I told her, you know, I'm making enough money. You don't need that. I'll just, you know, I'll pay things for you and until you're able to be on your own. So I pay her space rent, her food, her electric bill, their clothes, anything that she basically needs. And I give her a, um, a debit card and put 500 a month on that for her, too. And do you think you might end up marrying this woman? No, no, no. That it, um, It's never going to be anything but appropriate from now on. Um, I don't even have those feelings romantically anymore. Um, I care very much about her, but it's more like uh, how you'd care about your daughter. And she's done a lot of changing. I've done a lot of changing. Uh, and I'm very proud of, of what she's accomplished. And, you know, I tell her that uh, the, the promise that I've made is that I'll never, ever be inappropriate in any way again. So I'm always going to live up to that. <laughs> Now, one realization I've had over the past few years is the contingent nature of all identities, that I've come to realize that just because someone's Christian or, or Jewish or black or, or Muslim or homosexual, it doesn't necessarily tell you much about them because there's no essential quality to being a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, that uh, you need to know a lot more things. And so, too, there's no essential quality to being a sex offender just because you've been convicted of of breaking the law with a 16-year-old girl, there's nothing necessarily that follows from that. You can't make a lot of deductions. Therefore, because Donnie did this, therefore, we know X, Y, Z. I mean, people are much more, uh, generally speaking, complicated than that. And yeah, we, we do make some generalization. So if someone's incapable of graduating from high school, there's a pretty good chance that they're below average in intelligence. If someone has a master's degree, there's a pretty good chance that they're above average in intelligence. Uh, if someone's fat, they probably can't run too fast. Uh, so there, there's some generalizations you can make, but you can't deduce the essence of someone from whether they're a Christian, a Jew, a homosexual, a black, or even a, a pornographer or a, a preacher. I mean, these are identities that, that people have, but there's nothing inherent that then flows on from these identities. Do you, do you have any thoughts right. on this topic? Yeah. I, in fact, I say some similar things, but I, I make it specific to the sex offender um, genre of, or class of people, whatever you want to call it, um, because the laws that we have just lump everyone together, and that's just not like you know exactly what you're saying. People are just so different. You know, if I would have done the exact same things that led or been, even been accused and had done all that I was accused of, 
But had I lived in Nevada instead of California, a crime wouldn't have been committed. Or, you know, because Bethany was of legal age in 38 out of 50 states. So, you know, but yet I'm still lumped in with a person who has done the most horrible things to the youngest possible child. You know, it, there's there's not really a, um, I mean, there's some, a few ways that they try to distinguish uh, some differences, but um, not nearly enough. Uh, you know, for example, um, if this is how weird it is in California, the way that the tiered system that just went into the effect, it went into effect um, a few years ago. If Bethany would have been younger, I would actually be on the registry for a shorter time. <laughs> it's crazy. Had she been 14, I would be on the registry for seven fewer years than her being 16. They just can't figure out how to categorize because sex offenders are very politically advantageous to whoever's trying to be tough on crime. Um, they'll, they'll get away. It's the one group that's still okay to hate. So you could say whatever you want about sex offenders or whatever legislation you're trying to push at the time, you know, you can use that as a political pawn. So we come out, you know, we get these really crazy laws. Like, you know, another example. Um, a guy who, like, if you are on the Internet and you accidentally go to a site and you download pornography of someone underage, in California right now, you're going to be on the registry for life. And you're in the same category as someone who has raped and, you know, violently raped multiple women or young kids. So, you know... And, and stuff like that results because, you know, most likely some assembly person wanted to pass a certain bill because of a certain situation that was in the public eye. And, and so we have these ridiculous results. <laughs> so, you know, you, the, the point, though, is, is, no, you can't categorize everyone together. You can't, you know, and, and for me... My world was about Bethany. It was not about people Bethany's age in general. It was about a person who I chose to ignore her age. It was not about an age group. So, you know, but our prison system and our psychiatry professions say a sex offender cannot be treated. Okay, that's incredibly wrong you you have to break it down to different categories like certain people sure maybe they can't but others that you have labeled a sex offender definitely can you know, i was in jail while awaiting trial with a man who showed me his paperwork because he was hoping that i could help him and he was labeled a sex offender because while intoxicated in a jail cell and taking a leak, a female officer 
walked by and he grabbed his penis and told her, fuck you. So he was labeled a sex offender for that act and is on the registry for life. Wow. And he was drunk at the time. Yeah, he was drunk. And he was just pissed off at the cops. And he was taking a leak when the female walked by. So because he grabbed himself, though, while saying that to her, they gave him a sex crime. And now he's lumped in with every other sex offender in California. <laughs> now, he can get off of the registry now because of, you know, some reform since then. But someone has to do the paperwork for him or take the case because he's not capable mentally of doing it himself. Now, but, what, let, let's talk about your trajectory with women. So you grew up a, a preacher's kid. So did you have like a Madonna whore complex about women uh, when, when you were growing up, you know, developing an interest in girls? Wh what was your attitude towards women? Well, my dad um, was a Pentecostal preacher and in, in, he not he wasn't necessarily the fire and brimstone kind, but we were around a lot of those people, and so um, it was always be into our heads that you know sex is something that you wait for until marriage, and there's no purpose in dating someone unless you're planning on maybe possibly marrying them. So if you don't think that they're marriage material, you shouldn't even date them. Sorry, we went over a big bump. <laughs> um, so. So I didn't, um, I didn't date very much. You know, I had female friends, but I didn't date very much until my senior year of high school. And then I dated my son's mother and we were dating for four years before we were married. And when she, when we were married, um, you know, on our wedding night, she's still a virgin. So, um, you know, kind of lived that and she's six days younger than me. We were together for 10 years. Um, the only reason that that ended was because of me deciding I didn't believe in the religious stuff and deciding to produce for adult websites. Now, wait, <laughs> let's, then, let's go back to when you're, you're married. Did you have a growing sexual frustration that there was this kind of sexual utopia out there that you were missing out on? Um, sometimes I would think that, but I don't think it was any you know, any different than most um, married men or most men in general. You know, you always think the grass is probably greener elsewhere. Um, but when I started, um, and my ex and I split up, um, I started being able to be around women who would do all the things that I wanted them to do, and I found it very unfulfilling and missed um, the intimacy I had with my wife. How, so how many, how many, when I, how many porn go, how many women did you sleep with during your porn career? Um, well, I stopped counting at a hundred. Okay. So <laughs> okay. I didn't date very many. But, yeah. <laughs> but stop, you know, it, it, I stopped counting at a hundred. It was just a different life. I mean, it's just, there were some guys that would deny that they were doing the same things. Some that were open about doing the same thing, but even the ones that denied it, I knew some of them personally were lying. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so, if you're going to be a um, porn you know, producer, it'd be weird if you weren't 
having sex with with the talent. Well, yeah. Well, and also, I mean, it's not even necessarily for like uh, um, the the camera or anything. It's just that if a woman's working with you all day long in a sexual manner, a certain t- percentage of the time, things are going to develop between you in that genre, and you're going to want to, you know, take them out on each other. Yeah. Um, and it, you know that just happens. Now, how did and, that uh, affect your your view of women, particularly knowing that? If you you know offered offered them a few hundred dollars, that they'd be willing to do things that uh, most people would regard as degrading. I think I bought my own bullshit, to be honest with you, um, which was one of my sales points to them. I said, "Isn't it true that old religious men made up all these rules saying that you can't behave this way, and why should it be that men can, and there's no problem with it?" So um, I personally let myself believe that same thing. And I'd say, what's, you know, what's different about a woman, you know, with a sex drive or a man? And, um, you know, guys would kill to be paid to have sex on camera. So why should it be different for a woman? You know, um, and I would tell them, I'd say, who's really being degraded you you're getting paid or the guy who's out there slaving away at his minimum wage job out in in the hot sun doing labor work so that he could you know subscribe to your website and spend one of his hours wages i was you know who's really being degraded here and i kind of saw it that way at the time too yeah i mean you're a smart guy you're able to construct very convincing arguments to to do the things that you want to do. Now, while you were in the pornography industry, did you have any sense that your soul was being degraded? Yes, I did, uh, especially at the beginning. Um, when I went to Internex Expo and, and um, the AVN, you know, the annual AVN uh, shows in, in Las Vegas, first few years I saw things that I thought were absolutely disgusting and uh, made me feel horrible about being part of it. But then you just start getting used to that sort of thing and and it becomes just another lifestyle. I always found stuff like what Max Hardcore made. I found that repulsive all of my career. But um, some of the stuff that disgusted me at the beginning of it didn't by the end, you know, Max Hardcore, his stuff was, you know, he'd choke women and he'd pee in their throat and he'd do all these horrible things to them and degrade them. And he'd, he'd tell them at the beginning, he, you know, the, the story was he'd have them park their car like a few miles away from the studio. And that way, while they were filming, they knew they'd have to walk quite a distance back. To their car if they wanted to leave i don't know if that's true or not that's just one of the stories that people used to tell but i do know that his content was violent and you know very degrading and others did even worse and uh, that sort of thing never appealed to me or became normal and uh, what did you notice on on how rapidly women age in the business i mean you you get this bright 
fresh 18-year-old who's enthusiastic, and by 19, she's all banged out. Yeah, and and her eyes have dimmed. Like, yeah. you watch their soul die in their eyes. It just happens over and over again. They're not bright and sparkly anymore. They're dull and dead. And it was uh, pretty sad to see. And a lot of them would lose their relationships with their family members over the work that they'd done, you know, because especially in the early 2000s, before it was so acceptable, um, you know, fathers would be too embarrassed by what their daughters were doing, would cease talking to them and things like that. It's kind of surprising to a lot of people that, that no father has gone postal on, on the porn industry. I mean, in a traditional society, you know, a father would come looking for you if you yeah. photographed his daughter naked. You know, and, and something, the closest I ever got to that was a pastor whose daughter had worked for me. Um, at the time, I hated religion so much that if I found out a girl was a pastor's daughter, I tried to get her to work even more than normal. And um, this one pastor called me and at first he was upset and angry. Um, but knowing how pastors are, since my dad was one, I turned the tables on him and started talking about, you know, she should have to take personal responsibility for her actions. You taught her better. Um, you and I both know that you're just trying to make up for that behavior by blaming me when I am not the one making these decisions. And so by the, you know, he settled way down and by the end of it, he uh, was trying to get me to come to his church and be saved. So that was the closest I ever got to a, a father trying to attack. I mean, that was just verbal. Hmm. And, did you notice when you started becoming famous as an anti-porn activist and you had a tremendous amount of success, did you ever have any kind of sinking feeling that this level of success so quickly after leaving the industry was not good for your soul or were you just feeling like, oh, this is all good, man? So what actually happened, now I've always believed, because I've used this line a lot, I say if you tell someone who they are, that's what they'll become. So if you're someone that a person respects and you tell them who they are, that's what they'll become. So I actually tried um, and felt like I was doing a pretty good job for a big part of the time to live up to this position I'd been handed. Because, I mean, I'd have people from all over the world who would call me for advice. And I'd be quoted. I had books written. I wrote. <laughs> you know, and, and so I didn't... At the very beginning, when I first got out, I didn't feel like I should be on the stage three months after getting out of the industry. So I made the pastors interview me, Oprah Winfrey style, you know, on couches and chairs up on the stage rather than taking the spotlight myself and speaking alone. And I, I insisted on doing that for three years. Three years was a number that I had chosen, you know, based on various things in the Bible, actually. And after three years, when I was doing it alone, I felt like I was um, 
I felt like I was on a pretty good track. Um, you know, the the thing uh, in my life that ended up going off the rails was was Bethany, and um, I had myself convinced at the time that that wasn't so bad. Uh, I I see it completely different now, especially after spending the time in in Arkansas talking to her and getting her perspective on things. But at the time, how did I she would, how you know, did she regard her relationship with you prior to her going to the cops? Like, how was that? How did she experience that? So at the time, she thought that that's what she wanted. But later, having reflected, and now as an adult, she told me that I had groomed her. And um, some of the evidence she gave was that when um, a guy her own age um, was interested, I would make sure that she felt that he was not good enough for her. So she felt like the only person who was was me, that that was the message being given. And so I owned that and I said, you know, that's definitely not what I meant, but I can see how that's how that how it came across. Because um, I had, you know, when she lived in my house, I encouraged her to go out on dates once she turned 16 because she had promised not to date until she was 16. And when she did turn 16, I encouraged her to go out on dates. She'd come back from those and tell me, oh, he doesn't compare to you. Well, because all, you know, the years before that, I was telling her what she should look for in a guy and, you know, and what to avoid. You know, one example, a a guy that she had a crush on, um, I pulled up to drop her off at school and she saw him and she was about to run up and say, um, you know, hello to him or whatever. And I says, oh, let's sit here and watch for a second and see how he behaves. And he was, you know, flirting with every girl around. And I was saying, you know, so I know it's flattering when he flirts with you, but if you'll notice, he's doing that with everybody. So it's stuff like that that she felt was grooming that was me uh, making it so that um, the only person who lived up to my standards was me. You know, and this is what she told me was the message that she felt. So um, that's her, her view on it now. I mean, she has um, one time asked me if we could ever be together, you know, since getting her off the street. She asked me that one time, and I told her no. You know, and then since then, she's never, ever brought it up again. Now, were you dating women, uh, what, uh, 2006 to 2010? Um, I dated my son's mother again, and there was um, a few that I went out on dates with, but didn't date long term. Um, one of the reasons was when a woman sees you stand on a the stage, there you get a lot more attention than when you're not <laughs> a guy standing on a stage, and um, it would feel fake to me, and I would say. You know, it was kind of a turnoff. I wouldn't really say anything to her, but to myself, I would just say, I don't even want to take the time to get to know this person because the only reason that she's talking to me right now is because she saw me speak from a stage. And honestly, that Bethany, I shouldn't have said her name, but there it is, uh, began appealing to me because 
she saw me all the time as I was, you know. And so, like I said, I saw her as a person who I, who was very special to me, and I chose to ignore her age. But that's one of the things that I liked was it's like, oh, yeah, she sees me every single day as I really am, and she's still saying all these flattering things and wanting to date me and marry me and all this stuff. Now, now the book of Genesis has a profound verse. It's not good for men to be alone. And yeah. I mean, you were vulnerable because you were not married to a woman at the time. Right. And the closest I came was um, in 2010, early in 2010, I started dating my son's mom again for nine months. But like I had mentioned, that didn't work out. So there was others you know, that I would talk to for periods of time, but, you know, they just, and and some of them would just build up a picture in their mind of what I must be, and I would know that's not accurate, you know. So there was a woman in Missouri, for example, that she was constantly talking to me and calling me and writing me and wanting me to come see her, and I did a couple of times. But person that she thought I was I knew I wasn't <laughs> and you know so it, it was pretty lonely mm. yeah I, I can I can only imagine so how did your view of, of women change like what was that transition like moving on from being a pornographer to being a, a pastor you're dealing with a very different type of, of woman did you did you find your your brain getting cleansed? Did you, did you have yeah. unrealistic expectations for women's bodies? What, what was going on? Oh, no, no, I definitely didn't. Like I, um, that's one thing. Um, after being in the adult industry for so long, I think that people are affected in various ways, but one of them is that you like for, in my case, I appreciate bodies, all women's bodies now, and not just a specific type. Um, because I shot content for every category that you can imagine, and I saw beauty in all of it. And but, but and uh, it's freezing a little bit here. We'll Same way that to a great extent, Mormonism in America, at least in until tradition, until recently, till, is kind of like that. But Christianity. <clears throat> not white nationalism, not nationalism, not ethno-nationalism, but Christianity, is so integral to the identity I've, of so many Americans. Okay, okay, uh, I and, lost uh, you the last 30 seconds, so go ahead. Oh, okay, so, yeah, we're, we're on I-80, so there's a few spots where it cuts out. But, yeah, I, you know, so basically, you know, what I was saying is that um, when I'm speaking, you know, uh, I, I wanted to be a, a good moral example so I would pray a lot, and I would see women as God's daughter, and um, I would remind myself that he just has one woman for each man, and I would say, she's not mine if I'm walking in a mall or something and, and an attractive woman is around, or whatever the case might be, if I'm speaking to one in church, I would just repeat that in my head she's not my it took a while because i was used to seeing all women for what they might earn you know when i was in the adult industry i would look at them and think oh yeah i could for this side or that side or this category or you know 
And so it was a change to go from a place where you saw women as dollar signs to seeing them as God's daughters who have to be respected and realizing that he has just one of them for you and not all of them for you. Yeah. And how long did it, did it take you to get past, you know, thinking about how much money, you know, this, this woman could, could make if you shot her? That, that actually took a few years, you know, um, it was such a habit. Even when I was an adult, uh, I had a, a girlfriend for six years and we were engaged for four of those. And the two of us even would talk when we're walking around and, you know, point out women and discuss what we could make. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was just, it took a while to, to, to not do that. And, and also, you know, I would look them up and down when I was an adult, you know, I was sizing them up. Um, because I was very money driven. And so that was my primary way of looking. I first looked at what they could make for us. And then, you know, after they're working for us and I've seen them naked and they've done all this different work, then I would allow myself to get involved with them. And I had my girlfriend, fiance, whatever you want to call her, I had her consent. So, um, it was quite the difference. And have you maintained any friendships with people in that industry? Mm, no, no. <laughs> no, actually, I, I haven't maintained friendships with hardly anyone. Um, because even the people that I had in the uh, church side of things, they definitely disappeared after the um, situation. Um the legal situation that I went through and that made me very angry for a while. Um, you know, I had one who had been my friend and we were writing a book together and I was at his house every Thanksgiving and Christmas and always going out and doing stuff, you know, with the family and taking my son and going out with his family. And, um, when I had served my time, called him up, to say hello he invited me out to lunch and uh i thought great you know i just like old days but he invited me out to lunch to tell me that i wasn't allowed to come to his church anymore so i did not expect that from him he's a very intelligent man he's a he's a he has a doctorate uh, level education um he's a no doctor so-and-so, and very intelligent guy from great schools, and, you know, he's got a huge church and has been very successful, and I didn't expect him to react that way. But that's been kind of typical of most, you know, a handful of thought I had lots and lots of friends how many christians stood by you during this time are rather protected they they they've stuck around they're protective and uh you know they're great and hey how did being in the porn industry affect your relations with your family and say friends you grew up with 
not too much. When I was in the industry, um, there weren't very many family and friends that refused to talk to me. Uh, not even my own dad, who's a pastor. He just would avoid talking about what I did for a living. Um, so um, there were a few people from his churches that were very vocal about it, but I had never been really close to the vocal ones. Um, but secretly, a lot of the people who were Christians would want to see the work I had done. Uh, there were a handful of them that asked for passwords to my website. Free passwords. So, yeah, of course. <laughs> What's your critique of the various Christian groups that you saw trying to work with and help people in the porn industry? Um, some of them shouldn't bother. The ones that are outside picketing and yelling and telling you that you're going to burn in hell are just wasting their time. It's not going to accomplish anything. Um, there were groups like Triple X Church, though, that they would go in and they would just be kind to people and love them and bring them water and even do their makeup for them and just tell them that they were loved. And if they felt like they had had enough, you know, there's help for them to get out. But they wouldn't push them, really. So, um, you know, there's a big contrast. And then, you know, I don't know if you heard, but do you ever hear about Shelly Lubin? Uh, no, what's uh, going on with her? So she's dead now. She uh, she crashed and burned. So she had, you know, Pink Cross, and, and she was very active in um, in her work with people in the adult industry. And then uh, her life just crashed down, and her and her husband broke up, and she got involved in some shady stuff and ended up dying of a drug overdose in a little... Wow. I mean, none of that surprising. I mean, there was always something kind of, you know, off off about her. Um, so, wow. So she was, a, she was a porn performer, then she became an anti-porn activist, and then she dies of a, a drug overdose so oh the humanity yeah 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 it, it, i mean it, i was actually um i was surprised that she went that far you know i didn't i didn't think he would always stick around but i'm surprised she ended up dead for sure yeah and uh not not a not many people can hang hang around the, the porn industry for, for very long. I think Pastor Craig Gross and company moved on from the Triple X Church. They now what? Do they have a marijuana ministry? Yeah. Oh man, Craig. Oh my goodness. I don't really know what's up with Craig because um, yeah, he went to that Christian cannabis thing, and then he went further into psychedelics, and then. Um, he started having this thing called go to the light or take me to the light or something like that, where he would have people take psychedelics while having this certain type of experience where they lay down on a table, close their eyes and have this, I don't know, blue light or something flashing that's supposed to make them have the most ultimate trip. So <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Craig. And, you know, Craig is an educated man, too. He's not just, you know, he he, he went to, he has a degree in, 
in in Christian ministry from um, from a pretty good school, <laughs> you know, Hope International University, and um, I don't know what's going on with him. Hmm. His son, by the way, I don't know if you knew this or not, but like his son has a music career, never got too terribly popular, but he was also in the movie Jonah. His son was. Oh. Um, with uh, Russell Crowe, he he was one of Russell Crowe's um, kids in the movie, and you know he did a few others. In I don't know. <laughs> so now, now, how has your attitude towards Christians changed? I assume you grew up thinking that to be a Christian is to be a good person. Then, uh, when you got into the adult industry, I assume that you developed a more negative view of Christians, and then you became a fervent Christian, and then you experience pretty much all your, your Christian friends leaving you. So talk about your the relationship of the, the trajectory of your view of Christians. Well, so when I was an adult, um, and I just hated Christians, and I took all that out on God, too, and I kind of confused God and the people claiming to represent him. But I, I've never returned to that hatred. I have disappointments, but I step out of my own shoes and try to understand why people behave as they do. It's still hard for me to do because, you know, I know me and I know my intentions, and I assumed that my friends would too. But um, I cannot blame them. You know, the same guy I mentioned that says I can't come back to his church. I don't hate him for that because, like. I have to realize that in the times we live today, if you're associating with this person, you know, like people try to lump politicians in with Jeffrey Epstein, it's kind of similar. I'm not anywhere close to the level of Epstein, you know, but um, it's kind of similar. Nobody wants to be associated and it just kind of makes sense in this political time. I mean, it's, it's disappointing that, um, you know, a pastor can't be a friend to a person who um, has had a moral failure without being lumped into the same category, but it's understandable, too. So I don't really hate anyone. I'm just disappointed um, on a friendship level, but not because of their Christianity. And what's... What's it like moving from being a professional Christian, where that was your career and your your personal life and your redemptive arc, to what what are you now? Are you still Christian? Yes, absolutely. I I have uh, you know since that time since that happened, I read the Bible cover to cover fifteen times. I read the Catholic Catechism three times. I I spent. Um, three hours a week with the Orthodox rabbi for a period of six months. More authentic, um, although then I thought that it was too. But yeah, I realized how little I know. Um, and I just, I love reading the scripture. There's never a time, I've read it, I've read the Bible a total now of 23 times in, in uh, eight translations in two languages. And... I really enjoy it and get a lot out of it. Um, my time spent for six months with the rabbi, three hours a week, 
really illuminated a lot about the Old Testament that I, well, from your perspective, the Torah, I guess, um, you know, that I didn't know before and makes me understand the new even better because every writer of the Bible was a Jew except for Luke who wrote, you know, Luke and Acts. So it, it, it's deepened, you know, and it's, um, it's, it's not about um, talking to anybody about it. It's just for me. So, I mean, it still comes up in conversations. I love a good debate, you know, or discussion. Now, but, uh, how do you feel about the trajectory of the United States? I can't believe it's reality. It's so crazy. <laughs> like, this time where people are canceled because they won't say that a biological male is a woman, it's like the most looniest thing that you can imagine. I don't hate anyone for thinking that they're, you know, or wanting to be a woman or whatever, but our society is just crazy when we insist that if a person doesn't say the right thing and use the right pronouns, which grow daily, they're a bigot. <laughs> it's what the heck has happened to our society. I think that we're just, our country became so successful that people have, way too much time to come up with absolute stupidity. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I don't comprehend how we got to where we're at, and I don't comprehend how adults can stay in this place. It's just crazy. And uh, are there things that uh, fill you with optimism or inspiration about America, or you just see primarily bad directions? No, I think that that we're we're heading in a trend where um, eventually people are going to um, stop being so stupid and and insane and get over it. Um, I'm optimistic about the future. Um, I'm even less. Well, for a while, the far left really bothered me and concerned me, but I have more faith in, you know, I'm an independent, but I lean conservative. Um, and for quite a while, I, I would think that most Democrats are, you know, not people that I will ever agree with much about. But... The way that the far left is taking people makes the Democrats in my life start having conversations with me that I never would have had before, and I start to respect and get more hope because they're saying, "Yeah, things are getting crazy. We got to do something about this. We've got to, you know." So, so I feel like eventually we're going to be united even though right now we're very separated and divided. I think that we're going to unite because right now fringe groups are controlling the narrative and people from both sides are starting to realize that it's getting too so ridiculous that we have to work together if we want to stop the insanity. So do you think we overreacted to COVID, underreacted, or we handled it about right? Well, I mean, my stepfather died of COVID, so 
for a while, I was very upset with anyone who wouldn't get vaccinated. And at the time when he died, a vaccine would have saved him. But then as the virus mutated and evolved, that became less the case. So I think I don't see how we could have done a whole lot better. Um, we went a little overboard, I think, with the uh, with the masks and making everybody quarantine for so long. But um, I think we did better than most other countries. And how did the masking and the social isolation and the whole COVID lockdown thing, how did that affect you? It didn't. I I refused to to change much about my life. I was, I didn't, I mean, I got vaccinated when it came out, but I never, you know, really was so, you know, I wore a mask if I had to, if, if it was required at the place I was going, but, and I didn't, I didn't, you know, make any fuss about it. I just, your house, your rules. But if I didn't have to, I didn't wear one. And I just went about my business. I didn't stay inside. You know, I just, lived life normal to the point that I could, you know, some of the places I liked going were closed because of it, but yeah, I just, I thought, you know, if you want to, I still know people who are wearing masks to this day and insisting on staying in their house as much as possible. I just. And, uh, here you you're frozen there for a second so let's see when uh, you can when you're but it back. can't be criticized um in a way that oh, could yeah. be in the okay, UK. You're, you're back back. In, in okay parts. okay great hey um talk to me we've talked about your trajectory with with christianity with with women uh talk to me about your trajectory with alcohol i assume you were raised in a home where you were raised not to drink alcohol yeah um i was and um and then in in the adult industry, I did a lot of that, lots of drinking. Um, right now, I haven't had a drink, not even a single drop, for about let's see, it's been a month and a half. So, you know, I when I got out of uh, prison, um, I would I didn't get crazy with the alcohol. And, you know, sometimes I drink a lot. Sometimes I drink um, just a few beers. And by a lot, I just mean, you know, enough to get drunk. Um, Before going in, I would drink a couple bottles of wine a night. Um, But now, you know, I'm a professional driver and I actually um, had a pretty good DUI scare. You know, and so I just decided not to let it be part of my life at all anymore. So, you know, I I left a, a bar after, you know, I don't drink, of course, while I'm out on the road driving, but came back for home time and went to a bar and had a couple of beers. And, and um, you know, I had an encounter with police and they thought that I might be under the influence. And so after that issue (laughs) and hiring an attorney to handle it, I just decided no more. And so 
How, how long ago was that? That was in June. Yeah, so since June, I haven't had a single drop. And how, how are you different? Like when you're drinking regularly and you're completely dry, how is your life different, if at all? Well, I miss alcohol. <laughs> I do. Um, I like having a few beers at the end of a long week. Um, I like to go into the movie theaters that I'll, you know, now serve alcohol and, and have a little half bottle of wine like they sell and, and watch a movie. Um, I like the emotional change that takes place when you sit and have a couple of beers in a bar and listen to the, uh, you know, to the jukebox or whatever you want to call it playing. So all of the things that I enjoy doing to relax use, you know, usually include alcohol in some way. So it's, uh, it's difficult, but getting easier all the time to not have it. Cause I feel, I feel like I feel more when I've had a few drinks, you know, I let the, I let my brain relax a little bit and stop trying to rationalize everything or look for logic and everything and I just allow emotions to come out of songs and things like that so I do I do miss that yeah I'm, I'm assuming that alcohol was a solution right it was a solution till it became a problem and so the solution was it, it made you feel alive it uh, opened you up to your emotions and it yeah. kind of turned off say some parts of your thinking yeah, absolutely. And um, so I miss it for all those reasons. So now I'm uh, still not, I, I haven't found, um, you know, a solution to let me enter as often as I would like to into the emotional side of things. You know, music is probably the best for that, but alcohol can enhance music quite a bit too. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb here, and I think that you're approximately, what, 10 years in the porn industry, or that, that in many ways was an attempt to get in touch with a more emotional side that's, that's otherwise kind of foreign yeah. to you. Okay, you're frozen, but uh, did... did, uh, so did porn basically, help you open up American, your you can't go around life. slagging off Christianity. You will lose so many voters. And that's the oh, just, well. Look, Joe Biden ends every speech saying "God bless America" and "God bless right. the troops." So you um, have to. Now, it's so in, it's so inbuilt, you see. Well, but okay, but let's. At the same time, there's there's Christian nationalism and then there's back? Christian nationalism. So, you know, there's an ambiguity to the term. For instance, when someone says "I'm a white nationalist," you could take that as saying he is a nationalist and he is a white person. But that's which is you know, descriptively effectively. But that, that's obviously not Number. what it means. And, as and, okay, and, as hey, well as you can back, basically say, I'm back, a Christian nationalist. Back. Which this so, is what yeah. yeah. I was talking about uh, was was pornography a way for you to feel something, feel something intense? Yeah, for sure it was. Yeah, um, you have a, an emotional connection with the people that work with you, and. And, and that's, it might be artificial, but it seems real at the time, you know, after you've worked together for quite a while, even during a, a single day, you know, you could form this emotional bond with another person. And uh, I liked 
I liked that a lot. Yeah, to what extent is porn a, a big family? You know, that's actually a pretty accurate way of describing it. It is a big family in many ways. Like, you go and people are really uh, down to earth at these um, shows. And they come from all different backgrounds and, you know, all different economic backgrounds, too. And, And everybody, you know, when I was in the business, you'd have these people making millions hanging out with brand new people who aren't making anything yet um, normally wouldn't have anything in common but get together and you know just there was a camaraderie for sure amongst the people they're not I mean obviously there's oddballs everywhere in society but the majority of the people in porn I wouldn't consider them all that odd Mm. and uh if you were a father of of a of a of a girl and uh, say she's moving into her her teens, what would you tell her about guys, sex, the pornography industry, strip clubs, degenerate culture? It's a hard one because, from my own perspective, I know that the more someone tried to tell me, you know, what to avoid and what I should think the more I wanted to be involved with exactly that. So I think I would just be open and share the stories. You know, like I do have a son and um, with him, I'm open about anything that he wants to talk about. And I'm not going to use explicit terms, even, you know, he's an adult, he's in his 20s. you know, I'm still going to be his dad first, but I give people, you know, my reasons and I use my own life instead of telling someone what they should do. I say, here's why I choose to avoid. I'm not going to look at you any different. You know, like, for example, when I spoke at Yale University during sex week at Yale, we had a debate there. One of the things I said to them is you're all intelligent people or you wouldn't be here. So I'm not going to tell you what you should think about porn. I'm just going to give you more information to consider. And then you make your own educated choice. You know, and I think that that's the same sort of thing you have to do as a parent to an age appropriate level. Obviously, parents have more control at different stages of life. But when your kids are becoming close to becoming an adult and need to start learning to make good decisions, I think you got to let them make their mistakes, give them information to consider and say, I, my thing is you need to hear me out. You need to hear my side and then you make your choice. Now, what what were the different types of porn that you made? So I started off just with solo photos. And then the companies that I was doing that for, because I started, you know, before there was enough bandwidth for video on the Internet to really be viable. But as technology increased, they'd want more video. They'd want it to be hardcore. Um, and by hardcore, I just mean people having sex with each other and so, you know, I didn't get into it. Well, I did straight 
gay. Um, not too much gay, but a little bit because some of our straight clients also owned gay sites. And um, we would do all um, categories from 18 to as old as we could find them. So, you know, there's the matures. And we didn't do a huge amount of fetish stuff. We did a little bit. You know, there's, um, you know, the water sports, they would call it, which is urination. Um, one of our clients was really big. Basically do whatever they ordered. But um, for my own sites, then it, it never really got much beyond what you'd see in a, a Hustler magazine. Um, but what for client big, sites, big, then... Big, beautiful women. Did you do fat women? Yeah, sure sure did sure did and that's what i was saying earlier like i started appreciating all the shapes and sizes and, and you know and body body types of women and um really started finding all of them attractive and what was it um, like shooting gay porn so uh, it was actually fun <laughs> to be honest because of the the way that it happened um we happened to have a guy who lived 15 miles from our office in Chico, where I started, that had been in a lot of gay publications. He was like a gay star. And um, when one of our clients who owned a mature female site asked if we would shoot twink content for his gay site, this guy responded to our ads and he was one of the first. And he said, you know, I says, you know, I have no idea how to shoot this. And he goes, well, you're not going to be successful if you don't shoot it right, because this is a category that has to be shot right. So he trained us actually by showing us. He'd say, here's how I should pose. Then I should do this, you know, starting off exactly like we did with the females where, um, he was just posing solo and then um, he would recruit people to come and shoot with him. So I shot some of that mostly when it was him as the male model, because I felt very comfortable with him as a friend, but um, some of it made me uncomfortable. So I would have my fiance shoot it. <laughs> I'd have her do it and I'd go to the coffee shop. <laughs> so but the parts that I did shoot, um, you know, with Marky, he made them fun because he was just his character. He, <laughs> there was so much laughter going on. And in fact, it was hard sometimes, uh, difficult, very difficult to, to find men who could perform on camera for straight um, heterosexual sex. They might be, you know, think they're Romeos in private, but when you put them in a room with a camera, they couldn't perform. So I told Marky, I says, you know, you're a professional. Um, would you ever work with women? And uh, he agreed to do it, and he had never touched a woman before. <laughs> and he would be the funniest thing, because he was a true professional. So when the cameras were going, he's doing what he's supposed to do. And when they stop, he's making sure the women are okay. <laughs> and he's just laughing and he's making everybody else laugh. So, and then we'd have on music stands so that he could remain aroused. Uh, we'd have these adult magazines that featured men 
set up on music stands just outside of the camera's view. <laughs> and the funny thing was, is when I went and bought those the first time to get ready for this shoot with him, you know, and a woman, um, I told the books, you know, where they were still in magazine form at an actual bookstore. And I said, yeah, these aren't for me. And he's like, uh-huh, sure they're not. <laughs> <laughs> so it was pretty funny. And what what instructions did you find yourself giving to the women most often? Well, you, normally what would happen is um, we'd recruit brand new people. We didn't live in a place that had any agents. Um, we ran ads and billboards. So we would start off by telling them how to pose, and they would quickly get the hang of it. And then pretty soon... Um, you know, we'd shoot the same people as often as we could. So they would start knowing what we expected and they'd do the work for us. And then if a new project came along, which did happen pretty regularly, then just, you know, it's the same thing again. You show them the first time what you expect and guide them through it. And then a lot of them, they just do everything right on their own. We treated them a lot different. I had producers from LA come up and um, every time I did the girls would end up in tears because they're not used to being treated the way that producers from LA treat people and but it also on the other hand uh, had a lot of adverse uh, effects on their life because of this fact they would feel like we were their friends because that's how we would treat them so they would do more for us than they normally would for someone else. And then when their life starts falling apart, they expect that we will make sure that everything gets removed, which was not in our power to remove all their content from the Internet. So that was a negative part of it. You know, they since we felt like made them feel like they were our friends. So they'd hang out with us and come to our house and go out on the boat with us and stuff. They would do more at our request than they would have done for a, you know, a producer in L.A. who had no emotional connection to them. And is there anything that you miss about the porn industry? So, for example, I miss the, the laughter. I mean, there, there are a lot of funny people in the industry, and there was a sense of camaraderie yeah. and that sense of, you know, fun and family. But how about you? Is there anything that you miss about the industry? Yeah, I'm, I miss the exact same things that you're saying, but I also miss, um, I really do honestly miss taking a brand new Ned before scene actress and getting her naked for the first time and getting her comfortable and watching her go from being shy to feeling sexy. That's a little bit graphic, what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway because it's just true. So you take this person, and at the beginning of a shoot, she is shy and a little embarrassed, and by about halfway through it, sometimes she's dripping on the counter because she's very aroused, by what she's doing and you make her feel like she's sexy. That was a cool transformation to watch and it didn't have anything to do with sex for me. It was just seeing that trend. Well, I guess it does in a way making her feel like she's sexy was what 
I do miss doing it because it is, it's a form of altering someone's mind. You know, they're, this person never in their life thought that they'd be doing porn, you know, because a lot of them we recruited, they're college students coming to Chico State to get an education and they decide to work for us for 500 a day starting pay rather than go work at a coffee shop and bring home 200 every few weeks you know and <laughs> you know with the part-time work so it, they didn't come expecting to ever do porn it's just the money's enticing and the people are friendly you know my fiance make them feel comfortable with us and make it feel like it wasn't so bad. So, you know, the very things that really would hurt people's lives, I do miss that part of it because, you know, I'm just being honest. You're you're manipulating somebody and making them think it's their idea. And there's a sense of, I don't know, power is not the right word because you don't feel it's not really a power feeling. It's just a. Well, it a, is it's a, a, it's cool. a power that you can transform someone. You can take someone and turn them into something completely different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's like, because I, 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 we even had virgins that would work for us. And um, I would never let them do hardcore. I had too much respect for virginity. Never did a girl lose her virginity on a camera on my set you know, in front of a camera on my set. Um, but she could do so. Yeah, she can do solo scenes. That I'm talking about would be very self-conscious at first and shy because they have zero experience. And then by the end of just a few shoots, they're looking confident and walking different and you know, and what would end up happening a lot of times, though, is they would end up losing their virginity to somebody else, you know, a friend in their personal life, because now all of a sudden they're feeling sexy. But, you know, it was just, you know, so I guess maybe that is a type of power. But when you just get someone to do something that's very outside their normal comfort zone and it becomes their comfort zone. And what was their career trajectory like in the adult business to the extent that you're aware of it? So not too many of the ones we recruited would ever go on to do anything that we didn't have them involved with. But there were some that would end up going down to L.A. and some who became pretty successful at it. Some who even, you know, were Playboy Playmates and Penthouse Pets. And, you know, and um, one of the, when I say Penthouse Pet, the first one that comes to mind is a girl named Chantel. And she um, she ended up becoming a Penthouse Pet and traveling all over the world for, for Penthouse. And, um, but the normal trajectory was they'd work for us until we couldn't find them any more work. <laughs> and then, Oftentimes, we'd bring on a new client because we became more and more known um, to people. And then all the same actresses could work yet again. And I say actress because we didn't really have any long-term males. Males would come and go. 
and that was one of the reasons why at the beginning of my career I would never touch a woman on camera but by the end of it sometimes I would do videos with some of them because we couldn't find steady males <laughs> so I just told my fiance well I could do it <laughs> and could you? Yeah. Were you were you a good solid performer I was able to because I mean I'm performing in my own house in my own comfort zone and you know so if I would have been in the same position as the regular male then you know that came in to work for us it probably would have been the same thing because if you think about it he's coming into a place where he's not comfortable he's expected to perform he's expected to hold out as long as we want him to before he finishes he's expected to even get hard on command and um there's all these people around and there's lights <laughs> so it's kind of difficult but you know it's different you know for me because it's my it's my <laughs> location <laughs> it's my people around and everybody that if i'm not comfortable with them being around they're just not going to be around whereas the males that we hire have no choice who's around them and what was your fiance's reaction you know, good job donnie you really rocked that scene <laughs> she did not like to watch it no she wouldn't like to watch it but you know she believed me because i was telling her the truth um that you know there's this is not something that is a threat to you on an emotional level because i don't want to date any of these people and i didn't i wanted to date her i was very crazy about her I wanted to you know we were engaged and so i was like you know it's sex and that's all it is you know and it's not even that really because it's work so it's completely different than normal sex so and I also let her play around a little herself. So <laughs> Now, you, you talked about these women, that their lives started to fall apart. Was there any common trajectory? Were, were there any common things that would come up when their lives would start to fall apart? Well, so what a difference it is today compared to then. I mean, I got out in 2006. And since 2006 porn is more mainstream and we have only fans and people don't lose careers over porn anymore but they did that so a lot of times a girl would get to her education and then if she was trying to work for a well-known company she'd get fired or wouldn't get the job at all to begin with because of the work she'd done for me so one girl went to work for hewlett-packard but then when her co-workers found out, it caused such a, a ruckus amongst the other co-workers that, that she was let go. You know, another girl, she was in the police academy up in Chico um, at Butte College, and they let her go halfway through it because she can't be a cop. It violated the morality clause to have been in porn. You know, so... You know, that was the case. And then they'd be treated different, even out in public in Chico, because we were known and we would always put new girls on my website. And enough people locally were members that they'd find out. And then the girls would be treated different. Even at the bars, people would just make assumptions that if they worked for us, then it's okay to touch them, you know, and, and stuff like that. So it, it, um, 
ended, like I mentioned earlier, family relationships too, or damaged them. Um, I remember one girl, she begged me to get all of her content removed from the internet because her dad had come out to his car covered with images of his daughter after work, you know, one day. Somebody had covered his car with it. And he was so ashamed of her that he wouldn't talk to her. And she's like, I used to be a daddy's girl, and now he won't talk to me. Of course, she said that while she's sobbing. And then some people would have their photos stapled to trees on campus. Um, one girl, she had a bunch of her friends. She was 18, but she was a senior in high school. But since she was 18, she could legally work. I didn't know she was a senior because, you know, all she has to do is show me that she's 18 with her ID and, you know, she she's legal. So she comes a few weeks later, though, and says that, you know, her, at the time email was very popular. So people were emailing her photos around to each other and... She was afraid of her dad finding out. She told her mom, but her dad had a health condition. So she wanted all of her content removed from the sites she'd been on so far. And we started contacting the sites, and some of them said, sure, but you're going to have to pay even more than we did for the content. So her mother starts paying off these websites to remove content of her daughter. And then, when the father finally does find out, because he still did, he was just like, oh, all right, that's cool. <laughs> so their whole point in making all that effort to remove it was because they thought that it would make his health deteriorate, and he just didn't really care once he did find out. Now, was uh, appearing in pornography the beginning of a downward trajectory for many of these women, such as into drug use, uh, prostitution? Uh, getting... Yeah, for some. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not for all, but for for a significant amount. Yeah. Um, one, the one that, that bothers me the very most. Um, so there's a girl, we called her Karma. She had her own solo site. Uh, she did stuff with guys on it too sometimes, but it was mostly just of her. Uh, she became real paranoid, used a lot of drugs, passed out at parties. Guys impregnated her while she was passed out. Um, she got heavier into drugs. When she was down and out, she'd always call me for help, so I never changed my cell phone number. I really cared about her a lot. Um, but this continued even after we stopped working with her. She was always afraid that people had seen her online, so she never thought that anyone truly thought she was cute, that they'd just seen her online. And um, when I was locked up, because to that day, I still hadn't changed my cell phone number even after I'm speaking, she wouldn't take advantage but if she was down and out and needed help, she'd call and she knew I'd be there and I always would and I'd go and help her out. I'd buy her feminine products or a new cell phone or whatever it was that she needed at the time or just listen. Well, when I was locked up, she 
she hung herself uh, from in a park uh, with the chain from a swing. And I know that wouldn't have happened if I would have been there to answer a phone call. Hmm. And what about others? Was there more than one who committed suicide? She's the only suicide that I knew of. There were others that tried um, and didn't succeed and got help. Um, there were many who got strung out on drugs. There were several who started prostituting because it's not that big of a leap from getting paid on camera to being paid off camera. Yeah. And what about murdered? Any any of them end up getting murdered? Not that come to mind. I don't. I can't think of any that did. Um, I can think of plenty who ended up getting diseases. But yeah. Yeah, it it, uh, it comes with a huge toll. And how important was was lighting and makeup to making these women attractive? Because often there's a there's a night and day difference between the the porn star made up and the porn star without makeup. Well, some of them, that was the case. But we kind of specialized in the more amateur look. So with that, you know, the lighting has to be professional, but the model has to be girl next door. So. We would normally not have them do much more than they'd normally do just to go out. You know, um, we wanted them to, to basically look very approachable and real. But then, you know, there were a few, there was a handful of them that they reached a level where they're in publications that, you know, make them up heavily and they don't look anything at all like themselves. You know, my personal preference was the way that they naturally looked. And I'm like, ew, I don't like how she looks in there. But, you know, you know a girl posing in penthouse or, or Playboy, for example, is looks a whole lot different than when she was posing for or working for my websites. Now, the, the news industry has taken a similar trajectory to the porn industry. It, it's basically dead as, as a business after 2007. Uh, do, do you ever find yourself paying to read news? Do you subscribe to any newspapers or what's your relationship like to journalism? So um, I do subscribe to the Sacramento Bee, although I'm going to cancel it because I don't read it enough. Um, I do pay Ben Shapiro because I just love to listen to that guy talk. I think he's brilliant. <laughs> Even if I don't agree with this, all the things he says, I just think he's brilliant. So I will pay, um, you know, to support the Daily Wire. And um, that's about it. Uh, there's not any others that I'm loyal to. I just, you know, I read whatever pops up in my Apple News app. <laughs> do you, do you but, pay for Apple News Plus? Yes, I do. Okay. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty good deal. Ten dollars a month, and you get access to a hundred magazines and you know hundred yeah. newspapers. And yeah, that's that's a pretty good deal. Uh, yeah, I like that. Do, do you find yourself a little skittish or reluctant to get to know people, given that they are going to find out about your whole turbulent journey? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, only up and only the last part. You know, the 
the with the teenager um i didn't care what people thought about anything else before then but i'm i'm pretty ashamed of uh letting myself make that mistake so i don't get close to hardly anyone people invite me over who do know and want to help me you know because a lot of people they just want to help you know and so there's certain people that hey come on over we're having this get together we're having that one come on over and i'm thinking uh people are gonna ask too many questions someone might google my name and there we go so i just avoid yeah i do a lot of camping i do a lot of going to the movies both things by myself <laughs> which is precisely what got you into trouble 10 years ago yeah yeah i guess it is but yeah and i do a lot of working so but i mean i'm i'm trying to accept such invitations more often just 2 days ago i accepted one i didn't really want to accept went to dinner with a group of people you know there's there's um the thing is is that uh you never know how people are going to react so i the, the thing that concerns me most is how it reflects on the ones who do support me because I've got such a, uh, I can be quite argumentative. So if it was just based on how things reflected on me, it wouldn't be so bad. But this experience, when the Bible in the New Testament says that there are wages to sin. What it doesn't tell you is that it's not only the sinner that pays them. So a lot of people in my life pay the price for being in my life. And that's the part that's hard. Mm. And what what do you think it might take for you to forgive yourself? I have finally done that. After, and I, I didn't until the time I mentioned in Arkansas when we made up. Um, when When she and I forgave each other, I was able to forgive myself. Um, I talked to her, like I said, just about every day. And... I love those conversations. Um, and they'll be about just random stuff. Like today, she was telling me about how she's going to go clothes shopping on Monday. You know, and then she was asking me about my opinions on where she should live. You know, and stuff like that. You know, as far as this house or that house. Or, so, it, it, I mean, it's just normal everyday conversations. But I, I love them because... As I've told her many times, I believe that God likes to restore relationships. I also believe, and I told her this too, that I used to have a lot more favor with him than I do now. And I believe that he's allowing me to realize just how serious my actions were. But I don't ever feel like he doesn't love me 
there's just consequences to the actions that we take. So I feel I have a lot less favor with him than I did before. But I don't let that keep me from forgiving myself. I've forgiven myself. He's forgiven me. But I am also realistic and realize that there are long-term effects. You know, there's cause and effect to all of our actions. You know, the, the Bible's full of that. You know, David paid huge price for his sin with Bathsheba. And um, even him, who was called a man after God's own heart, couldn't get away from those consequences. Okay, so. Donnie, I, I got I to gotta run off. Any, any final words for this evening? No, it's just been nice to talk to you and, and uh, look forward to saying hello again at some point. Sounds good, man. Take care. I'll talk right. to you soon. Bye-bye.